Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. So this evening, I'm sat with Matt Townend, Chief Operating Officer for EcoWorld London. Matt spent the last 19 years working with some of the industry heavyweights, including leading developments for St. James, Battersea Power Station, and he's now the Chief Operating Officer of EcoWorld London. So Matt, I asked you just before to try and reflect on the chapters of your career. So to get us going, do you mind beginning with where sort of chapter one begins? Sure. I know this is linked mostly or a topic that's mostly about careers, but I think one of the most important things for me personally was before I started work, I, I did. I think one of the things that in hindsight was the worst thing that could have happened to me was I did pretty well at my GCSEs and then, but I didn't really do much work. And I took that attitude into my A-levels and did a little bit worse and then scraped through my first year at university and failed my second year at university. And actually failing the second year was a really important and useful step for me or useful step in my life because it forced me to properly stop and work out how I learn and how, you know, and what's important. And I learned that I'm quite visual, you know, if I'm, if I'm revising, I have to write stuff out and draw spider diagrams and stuff like that. And I also learned by talking to people. So um, I ended up excelling at wastewater management and photogrammetry just because it was the only lecturer on my course who you could actually go and interact with. So that, that was an important first chapter for me. Okay. And so post-university then, according to sort of LinkedIn, we know you start with Barclay Group, but it, was, it, was it as simple as that? Did you know exactly where you were heading when you left uni? Uh, no, not at all. I, as part of my punishment for failing my second year, I had to pay for I had to pay for that second second year. So I got a job at Virgin Active with um, probably the best job title I've ever had in my career, which was um, a helping hand. So I've still got the badge with Matt Townend helping hand on it, and in a funny kind of way, that was also quite insightful accidentally because. The whole part of that job was you did a lot of different things, but you were there, you know, essentially to help people, but no, without any other real specific role. So when I finished, you know, I carried on working at Virgin through my second, second year and third year. And when I finished, they offered me a job in their marketing department. And it felt like that would probably pigeonhole me a bit. I'd also done some work experience at MC Saatchi. So I went for the grad training scheme there but was absolutely awful in the interviews you know they ask all those classic questions of you know what's your greatest weakness and I put something like oh I'm a perfectionist you know I can't let anything go and I left the my mate was working there at the time I left the interview and sat downstairs in reception with him and I just it sort of dawned on me how awful I was in that interview so I didn't really expect to get it Um, which is fair enough uh, and a one of my uncles is a headhunter in the world of property. So me and my sister subsequently all went to see him just to ask his advice on what we should do. And he obviously saw me growing up and realised that I enjoy, you know, spending time with people and doing different things. So he suggested land buying. And he put me in contact with the land director at Barclay Homes, Oxford and Chilton. They'd just gone through a merger. It was Barclay Homes, Oxford and Barclay Homes, Chilton. 
they'd combined it and um, he didn't have a job for me at the time, but we got on really well. And he said, ring back in two weeks. So I rang back in two weeks. They still didn't have a job. So I rang him pretty much every couple of weeks until he caved in and gave me a job. So we got sort of land buyer in Chilton. Yeah. When did the, when did the London days, when did the St. James days begin? How much longer after that? So I had two or three years at Barclay Home, Oxford and Chilton and properly threw myself into it. I remember those days very fondly. Every Friday night, the whole company would, or whoever was around, would go for a drink in the pub. And, you know, there was lots of events and stuff to go to. And I always made an effort to do anything that I was asked to do. So I remember those days really fondly. But a lot of my personal life was in London. And Oxford is a beautiful city, but it became to feel quite small. So I actually decided to leave Barclay and go and work for the guy that originally hired me. But the guys at Barclay convinced me to stay and move down to join a new part of St. James that was different. St. James is a joint venture between Barclay and Thames Water. It, It was when I joined. And there was a handful of us that were trying to buy land on the open market and had some of the characters who were involved are now very, very successful senior members of the Barclay group. But those early days, there was, you know, five of us hidden behind a couple of pot plants in, in this office in Hampton Hill. It was, it was just a really good sense of camaraderie and because, again, we worked, <laughs> it seems to be an emerging theme, we all worked bloody hard but we were all invested in it and you know we spent a lot of time together and and i remember it i remember it certainly those early days were were a lot of fun a lot of work but a lot of fun as well so there's the team of this five of you hidden behind these these pot plants and it, all things are going really really nicely aren't they very yeah. smoothly what happens next st james uh, became a wholly owned subsidiary of the Barclay Group. So we were no longer a joint venture, we were uh, another Barclay Group. And so the, the approach changed and there was more opportunity for us all to get involved. And as part of that transition, and then not long after that, I took on a different role where I was the head of land and planning at one of the regions, well, the South Thames region. And that all happened, again, a little bit like failing my second year there was another moment in my career where it went a little bit wobbly and and it was for a combination of different reasons one is that promotion I started managing more people I was probably in my late 20s I guess so still living like I thought I was at university so working hard during the week and then uh, probably enjoying myself a little bit too much at the weekends we had our first kit so in my early 30s, we had our first kid and it was just after the credit crunch. So there was this cauldron of pressure that all came together at one point. And I started, I went through this spell of being sick in the middle of the night. So I'd wake up and go and be sick and then just go back to bed again. And it, hap- it started happening relatively frequently and I thought it might be down to booze and having too much fun so I cut a lot of that stuff out but it didn't seem to change so I went through this process of all sorts of different tests I had an endoscopy which is literally the most unpleasant experience of my life and then the doctor turned around to me and said oh you might have a you know I don't think you do but you might have a brain tumor <laughs> oh, thanks 
Um, so he sent me off for a scan, insert joke about not finding anything, and it revealed that it, it sort of it was all fine. And at the end of the these various different sessions, the doctor said, "Well, maybe it's just stress." A friend of ours is an acupuncturist, and we saw him at a party one night, and I was telling him about it. I was telling him about it, and he got his knuckle and he stuck it in my sternum and said, does that hurt? And I said, yeah, it does rather. He said, well, you need to go and see an acupuncturist. You're not going to see me. Is that the test? Does that punch someone someone in the sternum and it means you need an acupuncturist? uh, subsequently, I mean, every time I tell that story, I go through the action of putting my knuckle in my chest and it still (laughs) bloody hurts. So I'm absolutely convinced it was just a way of him drumming up work but nevertheless i, I think that might be the this. test if you need a really good recruitment consultant as well <laughs> yeah exactly so i went to see this uh, this really like lovely lovely woman in notting hill somewhere i think it was and she stuck this a is a family show yeah yeah she stuck a load of needles in me and then said right i'm going to turn the lights off and i am going to leave you here just don't think about anything and it struck me that It had been years since I'd done that. We were always, our lives were always on the go. Even if it was, you know, sort of downtime, that would involve watching the telly or doing something. You know, we were never really stopping. And so, I mean, she she made me stop eating dairy, drinking booze, eating fast foods, all of that sort of bad stuff, and then weaned me back onto it. But it was a really good pause. It also triggered a curiosity in my mind about meditation and just mindfulness. So I went on a couple of courses off the back of that. And it just, I think the thing that it really taught me, which I bore people with a lot, is this idea of balance. I now know a lot more about what I need to be balanced. You know, I need to exercise, I need to eat properly, I need to sleep, and I need to have a bit of peace and quiet every now and again. And that concept of balance and that pause just allowed me at work just just to be a bit calmer and a bit more a bit more considered I guess and that helped me overcome some of the challenges that I'd had with managing people and you're never really taught how to manage people you know you get promoted because you're good technically but you're not necessarily promoted because you're great at running a team yeah um and I think that's probably a challenge that we all have, but this process of acupuncture and seeking balance is something that was a really pivotal moment for me. Okay, well, you know, we do, we like to do a bit, a bit of research and a bit, a bit of sort of digging in the closets before before you and I sort of joined this. And sure. so I, I spoke to one of the um, other guys who was with you those early days in Barclay. And tell me if this rings true. So um, they, they remember their earliest impressions of Matt was that he really listens often without commenting, highly analytical, and then dives into the detail and doesn't come up for air until he's happy he's got a handle on things. Is that out of interest? Does that sound like Matt, of, Matt pre-balance or post-balance? Uh, I think that's just me. And I think that is part of the training at Barclay as well. You're sort of brought up to do that, to really get under the skin of a problem and try your damnedest to solve it. That sounds quite a personal sort of challenge. Does, I mean, does that ever have any negative connotations or downsides in that context? Oh, y- yeah, absolutely. People, um, you've got to be really careful about how you do it because 
and and I'm not perfect at it by any stretch. You know, I still trip up. People take it as some people take it as a slight on them, and sometimes it can come across as a slight on them that they're not into the detail. But I do, you know, sort of quickly move through the implications. You know, so if we do that, what's the implication of that? Boom, 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 boom. Because I do, I do just, you know, I do want to understand it. And it's not done as a sort of criticism of people, I just want to understand it. But I find myself having to explain that to everyone quite a lot. So there's, there's clearly some downsides to it. And I, I think you can always get better at how you go about doing that sort of thing. But I'm not surprised that you, uh, you uncovered that skeleton. I'm sure there's a lot worse there. But... <laughs> Okay. Well, as, as a bit of a sort of recap, you spent 12 years at Barclay and we, we've talked about sort of the majority of time then with St. James. Yeah. But in 2013, there's a new player in town, isn't there, who's going to have another crack at the sort of the ill-fated Battersea Power Station site. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about what was the temptation there? What was, you know, what were you potentially sort of most excited about then in order to to leave the safety and security and what you built up then at Barclays to go and join what was then a, a, probably a, quite a risky move, I would expect. It was and it wasn't. So I don't... Well, it'll be interesting to see what other people, including my wife, think of this following statement. But I don't think I'm a, like a massive risk taker because I try and understand stuff as much as possible before I do it, if you see what I mean. So... The moment that I moved over to the power station, the rationale for doing it was because it looked like it was going to happen. So I met Rob and the rest of the gang through various different things that we'd done in Nine Elms. So the two or three projects I've been working on at Barclay were in that part of the world. So I got to know them as people. Uh, and I got to understand the ambition of the project. But I didn't move over until the Malaysian consortium had bought it and they were beginning to sell and it became real. And so it didn't feel like as big a risk to me as it would look like from the outside because there was a lot of firepower behind it and a lot of determination to make it happen. And I just knew that if I was working on projects next door and this thing came up with the amount of ambition that had been talked about, that I'd kick myself, that I'd had the opportunity to be part of it and hadn't hadn't taken it and so the guys who who aren't familiar you joined Battersea in 2013 not as a, yeah. a development director but with the title of head of residential well I started as a development director and then we started taking on two or three phases at the same time the market was good and the, the sort of sentiment was make hay while the sun shines and the ambition of the shareholders was phenomenal I mean that that ambition, along with Rob's ambition and the rest of the team, really drove that project. But we quickly moved into, um, you know, progressively getting bigger and bigger. And that provided me with the opportunity to take on a role of, a slightly more senior role of overseeing some projects rather than, or overseeing the residential element of some projects rather than just doing singular projects. And how is, how is that transition? That, that transition uh, was okay. I mean, the, the big change for me at the power station is I got much more involved in sales and marketing. At Barclay, there's lots of really good people, but they, it's sort of, you, you've got experts in your field and the role is a, is a lot more defined. 
And at the power station, there weren't as many people with good, strong residential experience because it was a whole gamut of different things going on down there. And so there was a sort of sense that, you know, I, I, under, I worked at Barclay for 12 years, I understand residential, why don't you get involved in sales and marketing as well? And that, <laughs> that was, you know, fascinating. I, I, I knew very little. So was speaking to a lot of people outside of my business and, you know, people I'd worked with in the past to try and understand sales and marketing a lot better. And it's not, again, it's not really my skill set standing up and selling and schmoozing and that's not really my style. So that, that was a big lesson and a big, you know, I, I learned a lot in that period. I learned more and more about managing people that, the sales centre is separate to where, or was at the time, separate to where the rest of the team worked. So, you know, every day I'd go over and say hello to everyone. And if I wasn't on form when I walked into that building, then people would ring me up afterwards and say, look, what's, what's going on? Well, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you your normal chipper self? And you just got out of bed the wrong side. But one of the other fascinating things about working at the power station, as well as the ambition and the mindset, I mean, the, the mindset of that place was, you know, amazing. The, the attitude was, why not? Why not do something? And, and so we gave a lot of things a good go, and some of them came off and some of them didn't. But one of the things that it, we started talking about more and more was, what's the business going to be about? You know, which is challenging when you're a single project business but we started doing sessions with some external folk who started prodding and poking about how we ran the business and what our ambitions were for running the business and I found that whole process really interesting you know how you put together the vision and culture of a business how you run a team what you know what, what are the important things at a sort of business level as well as a project level and that sort of stuff fascinates me. So you spent four years then with uh, with Battersea. I wanted to ask really about about that vision and ambition because you mentioned about sort of Rob and there's been lots written about about Rob and his personal sort of uh, stamp on that. But I wanted to really sort of drill into a bit more about your time there and whether you were successful in realising that that vision and what you think maybe has been the most successful achievement you did while you were there. I look back on those times as being very successful. I mean, that project, like you alluded to earlier, was had been the talk of the town for decades and no one had pulled it off. And, and we did, and those guys still are. And I think more than that, we did it in a way that was different. You know, we, we launched... Over the course of two years, or it was probably spaced a year apart, to be honest, we, we launched... The second phase of that project, which was the power station itself, and we asked people to come and stand in line and take a ticket to be seen, to be given the opportunity to buy an apartment. Now, it was a bit sort of Willy Wonkery, and no one had done that before. No one had had the audacity to say, you know, you're going to... Ordinarily, you would take that stuff and go and see people all around the world and convince them to do it but there was a sort of strength of belief in what we were doing you know that caused quite a few problems for a lot of the people that we worked with and, and especially in the sales team and I think that's when Rob started asking me to get much more involved in it because 
we both believed in it and he needed someone who could help with that and to sort of have that open mind and that ability I guess to try and find a way to solve that puzzle rather than just doing the same as everyone else and then the the year after that we launched phase 3a which was fosters and gearing and we did a simultaneous global launch across something like 13 countries I mean Rob and I went on off on this magical mystery tour we went to we went basically around the world in something like 10 days going to all these different countries and Rob would do the press and I'd go and set up all the various different exhibition centres and meet the agents and educate them and all sorts of stuff like that and then over two or three weekends we did these we did these 24 hour launches where we were in uh, you know, we had teams in, we did them over two weekends, six teams in different places the first weekend, six, seven in the second weekend. And we had this control room, <laughs> we had this control room in the sales of Martin Suite, and it was like the Battle of Britain, you know, we had these <laughs> rings on the walls, I, uh, I, I ran it, I was, the, <laughs> I was the fat controller, that was the actual job description. <laughs> and then we had a a thin controller who was my erstwhile uh, assistant. And we had a load of people in that space and we were, you know, we were getting phone calls from our teams in Singapore saying, I want a one bed. And I was saying, no, you can't have a one bed. I've promised it to Hong Kong. And, you know, I mean, it was absolutely mental. And it was full on. Yeah, and, and two or three other developers subsequently did that which i think is probably the biggest compliment that you can have is if someone copies you but yeah it, yeah there's, there's always going to be problems with refurbishing big grade two listed buildings and you're always going to have problems when you come to build massive projects like those individual phases are but the power station is off and running we managed to convince everyone that we should build a new tube station there's people living there. Uh, I think it's a great success. Uh, and I'm genuinely very, very proud of it. I took, I took not only my mum, but even my in-laws around it. And I, I dare say I haven't done that or probably unlikely to do that again in the future. <laughs> um, maybe that's just the in-laws. Um, but no, I mean, your original question, was, was it a success? Yes. On a professional level, yes. On a personal level, absolutely. I learned a hell of a lot. Um, I did a load of stuff that I never thought I would do. I grew as a person and as a professional. And there's a part of London that the world knows that I paid a part in realising. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's... I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. So after an incredibly successful then four years with Battersea, I am curious to, to find out sort of what was the catalyst then for, for wanting a change? I think, um, like I was saying earlier, the, one of the things that we started exploring at the power station was this idea of what the business and the culture of the business was going to be. And that really piqued an interest in me. And I got contacted by someone I used to work with at Barclay who was the chief exec of Wilmot Dixon's residential development business and the product is clearly quite different to what we were doing at the power station but the opportunity for me was 
it was a role that was essentially about building a team and building a business unit. And I thought I could, it just felt like the perfect opportunity for me to take all of that good learning about the approach and culture and discipline of Barclay and then that sort of why not attitude of the power station and try and find a way to mould them into something a little bit different. So I made the move to Wilmot Dixon or Be Living as it was called at the time and there were, we had two or three projects and there were five of us and I remember I remember one of my first few days there just gathering that crew together and sitting them down and saying, right, well, we'll, we'll get into the detail of the projects, but how are we going to operate as a group? Because it was a funny place at that time to be living. There was a, the sort of Wilmot Dixon house builder crowd. There was, they had a, a build to rent, they still have a build to rent um, team that brought different thinking to the business. And then there was a group that had been bought in who were ex-Barclay and had a sort of Barclay mentality. So it, it wasn't totally sort of settled and robust as a business. So I got, I got these five folk together and just said, look, how, how do we want to operate? And I got asked a couple of questions. Well, one is, what do you think about working from home? What would I suggest the working hours are? And what do I think about the dress code? What would I suggest the dress code is? And I said, uh, well, sort of in reverse our order, what's the dress code? I said, well, look, sitting around the table, we're all, you know, in and around being 40. If you don't know what to wear to work, then I can't really help with that. You kind of need to make that decision yourself. What do I think about working hours? I think we, we will all need to work hard when there's a lot of work to do, but we will also need to not work hard when there's not so much work to do. And we'll need to find our own balance, but I'm not going to be prescriptive about what time you need to be in the office and what time you need to leave that's up to you and what do you think about working from home which uh, I mean is a totally different proposition nowadays but um, at the time I wasn't that keen because I felt like if you want to create a team it's a lot easier to do that if you are in the same space as the people that you're working with and then we went on a little journey the five of us I've got some people involved to help try and work through that sort of culture and we did some sessions and we put a load of post-its up on walls and they wrote a nice pamphlet with, you know, lots of buzzwords in it and it just didn't feel right. And we went to some corporate sort of presentations where people put up their five-point plans. And uh, I, I was the MD of this region. I had a deputy MD and the two of us, I just sat down with him afterwards and said to Dave, look, I really don't think it's that complicated and I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on your podcast, but I said, I think our motto should basically be, don't be a knobhead. And I think in that phrase, you can sort of capture everything. I think, you know, it, it makes sure that people recognise that they have to be accountable for their own behaviour. It Most people titter when they hear you use the word knobhead, but it just felt like it provided a nice filter for how we should go about conducting ourselves. And it kind of stuck. I never quite got the... The name uh, badge. Well, yeah. <laughs> I never quite got the balls to stick it up on a wall. But um, it became, you know, the rest of the other regions within the business got to hear of it and they all seemed to subscribe to it. And it, But that, that, that part of the process, you know, the business bits became much more interesting. And 
actually managed to get to the stage where I convinced, because we had these three very separate tribes, convinced the chief exec and the rest of the board that we should actually do something, expand this, don't be a knobhead, to something a bit more formal, a bit more corporate. So I set up a week of, we had a week locked in a room in Shoreditch, where we had a whole bunch of external speakers come in. Most, if not all of them, were women, just as a sort of prove a point, because it's quite a male-dominated industry. And we listened to some totally different points of view, and we, we expressed our feelings through the medium of Lego, which, when they first said we were going to do that, I think all of our faces dropped. But actually, it was fascinating. You got to really understand how people's brains work. And we came together as a team behind a sort of collective vision. And it was, you know, it was brilliant. It was, it felt like a real, I got a real sense of achievement out of taking these sort of disparate groups of people with a very different approaches and uniting them around one, one sort of cause. It was brilliant. Um, I mean, it sounds brilliant, but it doesn't last forever, does it? No, it it didn't, and and <laughs> sadly, shortly we, we we were always going through a process of trying to get investment into the business, but it was always badged as it would be a minority shareholder, and um, we would be a left to run the business and be incentivized to perform really well because we get a very we'd be very well rewarded for it. However. That approach changed and the guy who brought me in, who gave me the space to do all of these different exercises, uh, left the business and uh, 70% was sold to, funnily enough, the business that I actually work for now. But at the time, I couldn't quite get my head around it. I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that we put so much energy into this process into uniting this business and then totally outside of our control certainly outside of my control such a monumental decision had been made that unpicked a lot of it and i didn't really get over that to be honest uh, i mean it still stands quite raw uh oh no i wouldn't say raw because it was a lesson that i learned and it is uh, something that I have taken into the roles that I've done subsequent to that and and it's nothing that I would change I think you know I think we spend an awful lot of time doing what we do and if you're not passionate about it then then I'm not sure I entirely see the point I mean Fundamentally, I got into this industry because I like the idea that at the end of your working life, or certainly at periods punctuating your working life, you can take your kids, bore your kids, and believe me, they are bored a bit, of stories of physical objects where you've, you know, that you've produced something. You can walk around and tell your kids stories about buildings. I find that much more satisfying than pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet and making someone else a boatload of money. So in 2018, you made the decision then to leave Be Living and you join a company called Greycoat. Tell me a bit more about those guys. Well, that, that's a, a very different business to the ones that I've worked in in the past. It was and is a lot smaller. It's a group of 10 folk who are 
commercial developers. And but they are the development management and sort of asset management bit of the process. And so I learned, and the, the sort of pitch there was to try and set up a residential arm to their existing commercial business. Incredibly bright guys, very good at what they do, as focused on the structure of the deal as as sort of the the product. And again, an experience that I learned a huge amount from because it was something I hadn't done before. The, the timing wasn't great for, for us. There's a couple of us that went into that business and it didn't really work out quite as we hoped it to. But that was mostly due to stuff outside of our control, to be honest. And again, that's a, a, a tended to keep in contact with, every, well, people from every business that I've worked in, I've made a point of leaving on good terms. I think that's really important, A, because it's a small industry, B, because you can't write a mantra for a business of don't be a knobhead and then behave like a knobhead. And C, it's a, you know, selfishly, it's a bit of an insurance policy, right? So if it always goes wrong, then you can, you can go back. Well, that's, that's a nice little segue, isn't it? Um, because in 2019... You join Eco World London as Chief Operating Officer. It's a new name, but a lot of very familiar faces, I presume. Yeah, yeah. So, just tell us about, but sort of, who is who's behind Eco World London? Well, the the main characters are the main characters who drove from the shareholder level the power station. So, it's a lot of the people that I knew from my times at BPS. And they were the guys that bought the Wilmot Dixon business that I was part of. So there were some very familiar faces at the sort of very senior level and quite a few familiar faces around the business generally. And how, uh, I'm curious, how much of a dilemma was it about returning back to those familiar faces? In one part, it was pretty obvious. And in on, an, on another side, it was quite a big dilemma I think we've never I've never really been one for going back be that places that you've lived or businesses that you've worked but one of the things that you know again building on that approach to culture and vision that we started at Be Living and then that was the big aim of going to Greycoat was essentially to set up a new business under the umbrella of that existing business I'd spent quite a lot of time thinking about the sorts of values in the culture of a place. And so having seen Eco World in action, albeit they were called SP Setia at the time, at the power station, I knew how they went about doing business and I knew how they went about treating their staff and that sense of team is a really big part of life at Eco World. And so it wasn't that big a jump, and it wasn't that big a deal because they're the sort of people that I'd like to work for and I'm proud to work for, and their approach matches my approach. You've picked up a title you hadn't you hadn't held before, Chief Operating Officer. How distinct was is that role from roles you've done before? How big a leap was that for you in terms of development or learning? I think one of the things that you one of the things that certainly I've noticed is that every time I've had a promotion is you become more or less hands-on 
and you're you're doing different things and you're involved um, you're involved in a high level across a lot more things so you know when we were talking at the beginning of this about this approach of mine of trying to understand the detail about stuff it's been I've always had to change my approach you know I can't understand the detail about everything and you become much more I don't know if reliant is the right word but you become much more cognizant of the people are much more interested in the people that you're working for because or you're all working for you rather because you know if they're on top of it and thinking about things in the right way then broadly you're going to be all right so shifting my focus away from not entirely away but more away from the actual sorts of nuts and bolts of projects and more into the people I think has been part of that transition let me just read you something that someone um, someone mentioned to me or how they, how they described you. Matt is one of three or four people who I've worked with that has the real ability to make a difference. And his current role gives him the latitude to bring all those skills to bear, which is lovely to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you, though, was about, about those skills. What do you think is sort of the most important skills? Oh, what are the most important skills? I think... It's quite hard to answer that question without coming out with some sort of. It's your perfectionist again, isn't it? Well, no, with you know, without sounding like you're just rolling off sort of wanky buzzwords. But I think you do have to genuinely listen, and I'm not saying I'm brilliant at that, but it's something I try to do. I think you have to have a sort of passion and care for what you do because. If you are going to make a difference, you are going to have to, I think anyway, you are going to have to work pretty hard to do it. You know, it's not about working harder than anyone else or you are going to have to put a lot of energy into it. And you have to, in my mind, strike a balance between thinking things through and actually doing it. I don't think either extremes are particularly useful, you know, just getting on and doing stuff without really thinking it through you always end up getting caught out. And if you overthink things, you'll never actually get anything done. So you kind of need to do the right amount of thinking and then just do it and work out the rest of it on the hoof. I guess one of the things that I've learned is the importance of relationships. I think um, this industry, but life generally, is all about relationships. And you have to... Well, again, it comes back to don't be a knobhead, I guess. But you, you've got to you've got to treat people properly. But that's not always being super nice. You normally, you know, you can be pretty sort of open and frank with people. But I think it's important to be honest with people. If you don't agree with stuff, then I think it's important you say it rather than disappear and create a narrative that probably doesn't exist. You, you know, I don't know. I mean. I, I I don't think what we do is rocket science. And You're being I too think... modest there, aren't you? It might not be modest. It might not be rocket science, but there are billions of pounds invested, right? In these, there's a, there's an awful lot of, of lot of risk tied up with that. There is. There's no guaranteed uh, returns. No. Well, yes. I mean, if you look at property prices, especially in London, over the course of decades and decades, they invariably go up. Now, I'm not saying that that means that you can kick back and relax but it's a you know 
there will be bumps along the road, but generally speaking, it will be all right. We've been building buildings in the same way for for a very long time. And I'm not saying that there's not risk in that, but you, most people understand what we do to a certain degree. And if you are someone and surround yourself with people who care and who are passionate and will actually think things through, then you can... You know, nothing ever goes perfectly well in what we do, but as long as you know that it'll never go perfectly well in what you do, it, it'll never go perfectly well, and you cre can create an environment where people are willing to bring those problems to you and you can solve them collectively, then you're sort of halfway there. But also, I think, and really importantly, we all live in flats or houses. We all have first-hand experience of the product that we're producing. So... I think the skill is to simplify complex problems so that everyone can understand them and everyone can move forward with them. And, and maybe that's a skill that I've got and I use quite effectively. I'll ask you about sort of you know, the the skill the skills you've got and others have been very very complementary. I wanted to ask them about about some maybe some of the things you want to learn and you want to develop. You know, and now having been in this in this role for sort of eighteen months, so. What is it you think that you've you've still got to, to develop? Or, or put it the other way, what's, what's the skill you most want to develop? I think I would like to keep improving on how you manage people and how you get the best out of people. I think if you want to build long-term success, then you've got to be surrounded by people who you can rely on and who you can find a way to get the best out of. And selfishly, that would make my life a lot easier if I'm surrounded by people who know what they're doing and I'm not having to do a huge amount. <laughs> Sounds so, the ideal. So, and that, you know, in, in learning about all of that sort of stuff, it'll also help me learn how to raise my two kids because they're getting, they're, you know, the two great girls but you know not without their challenges hitting puberty the more I can learn about um, managing people will help me with managing them as they go through their various different ups and downs and that will help build long proper long-term relationships with them and everyone else in my life and just sort of keeping on top of what is important to keep me balanced you know every now and again you slip into bad habits and just sort of staying on top of that sort of thing I think is really important but you know the sort of technical bits about how projects are run and how businesses are run fundamentally fundamentally businesses are about people um, so the better you can get at understanding and managing different people I think the better you can be in business. So we've talked about people an awful lot but why is that so important to you? I can't remember specifically, well, actually, I can remember specifically when it was, but there was a moment in my career when at home I was trying to, well, I, we, both my wife and I are trying to raise our kids in a way to be, you know, upstanding pillars of community. And, you know, we're forever telling them what the right thing to do is. And then going to work and probably not behaving in a way that I could fully justify to them. And this, it sort of dawned on me that 
it was pretty contradictory for me to to behave like that. So um, I started changing the way I behaved at work with a with a sort of filter being that if my one of my daughters came back from work and described how I had behaved as their boss, how would I feel about it as a father? And that has been, and again, you know, not brilliant at it still, but that, that has been a really useful sort of guide to me. And there's something, there was something about turning 40 for me that was important, not because I'd set myself loads of targets for me to hit, but that when I turned 40, life was, life was good. And I was quite proud of what I had achieved. And that sort of settled me down a bit in a funny kind of way, but it also started making me think about, well, I wasn't going to say death, but legacy, you know, you know, what is it that you want to be known as? And I think that's another really important question to start thinking about to help guide some of your decisions. You know, do you want to be known as someone who made a boatload of money? That's probably not the be-all and end-all for me. You know, do you want to be measured by your material successes or your successes, you know, you were part of these massive projects or whatever? Yes and no, but I think if you want to leave some really decent legacy behind, then it'll come in the form of how how people remember you and your kids become a really important part of that legacy story. So you have to... If you want to have some longevity in life, you, you have to treat people in a way that they will remember you fondly. So, so maybe it was a sort of coming of age thing, finally, at 40. <laughs> well, I, think, I, I, def, I definitely think that's that's something quite important. Um, and I think, you know, sort of given where we all are and spending a bit, maybe a bit more time at home, possibly with uh, with kids as well, I think that's probably something an awful lot of people will resonate with. So listen, Matt, thank you very much for giving up your time to do this. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. And I've, I have no doubt that our, our audience will really sort of benefit from that as well. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.